we decide. The title of my sermon this morning is, Which Way Will We Go? How do we decide? How do we make decisions? How does the church do that? And in Acts 15, we have a spirit-filled church that is going through a decision process. And what I want to do this morning, I want us to see this because we as a church need to understand this is the biblical way to make these decisions. There are a whole lot of ways that churches make decisions. There are some churches that are what's called um, congregational government or congregational led. And by that, it's little more than just democracy. Somewhere along the way, we put aside spiritual biblical principles and we embraced um, a Greek philosophy that the majority is right. Has the majority ever been wrong about anything? They have. So we know that's not biblical. It's not biblical from what we see in the pattern. There's others that have taken too much authority, and there's one man that has all the authority. Um, our, our friends who are a part of the Catholic tradition would understand that. that and in what, you know what? I know a lot of them, they, they don't agree with the... There's ones that love the Pope they have now, and there's some that don't. And I'm thinking, well, you're stuck with him, buddy. You got him. You know, you got that. He's the one that's the authority. What does it look like? What does this passage teach us? And then I want us to see, because many of us, one of the main questions that I get asked is this. How do I know what God's will for my life is? How do I know what God's will in a decision is? And there are principles and truths that we'll see in this passage this morning. One key truth, that without it you will never truly know what God wants you to do, and you'll never truly do what God wants you to do without this one principle that we draw from this one story in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas have been on a trip preaching the gospel in different cities. We heard last week as preacher preached about the great adventure and the experience that they were on. And boy, it pretty much replicates itself throughout the rest of the book of Acts, doesn't it? They go into a city and they preach the gospel, first to the Jews and then also to the Greeks. Paul will go in on the Sabbath day to the, to the um, Jewish synagogue and he will use that platform and that opportunity to share the gospel. Some will believe and some will not. And then Paul will then go out and preach to the Gentiles. And some will believe and some will not. And then some will come and stir up trouble. And there's persecution. And it just goes on and on. Our focus in this, in this series of messages has been, though, not on the experiences of individuals so much as it has been on the experience of the church. And as they've gone out, there has been a group of people who have gone, the Bible calls them in verse 1, certain men which came down from Judea. And they taught the brethren. They add something to salvation. They don't say, you Gentiles can't get saved. They say, if you are a Gentile and you get saved, there are certain parts of the Old Testament law that you have to keep. They're, they're not taking away from the gospel. They are adding to the gospel. It's a great danger in our day that we somehow think we have grace plus but I am saved, and you are saved, and every person that has ever been saved are saved by faith alone through Jesus Christ, plus nothing, minus nothing. And that is the gospel of salvation. And so these believers that hear this, they send um, Paul and Barnabas. They, they dispute with them. They argue with them. And so they go, and all of them go up to Jerusalem about this question. Now, some will say, well, this is the way the church is supposed to answer it. You get all the, all the leaders together. You have a council to make a doctrinal decision. But this is more than a doctrinal decision. 
This is directional decision for the church. Which way are we going to go? Which path are we going to take? Are we going to preach just the gospel or are we going to preach the gospel plus? Are we going to preach just to the Jewish and to those who will conform to the Jewish belief system along with the gospel or are we going to preach just the gospel of Jesus Christ? And it's a great reminder that our doctrine determines our direction. That's why doctrine is important. Teaching the biblical principles of scripture are important. That's why there are many churches today that are moving away from an open presentation of the gospel, and it stems out of their doctrine. And so the church is making this decision. This is a discussion, and notice in verse 6, the apostles and elders came together for, to consider this matter, and when there had been much disputing. I love that the inspired writer Luke takes all, I don't know how long this went on, Knowing churches like I know churches, it could have gone on for days and weeks. But there was much disputing. Luke takes all of that and he boils it down into that one phrase. There was much disputing. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand this morning, but how many of us know of church meetings and business meetings where there was much disputing that went on? And we understand exactly what takes place. But as they do that, I want you to see how they come to this decision a Holy Spirit-filled church making a decision. And their, their response is informative to us about church decisions. First of all, it observed the activity of God. When they make this decision, look what happens. When there had been much disputing, verse 7, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter says, look, you remember how it was God when he lowered that sheet down and he spoke to me and he sent me to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. He sent me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. We know it was God that did this. We watch for what God is at work doing. We watch for the, for the indications to see the work of God. And that gives us evidence if God is giving the gospel to the Gentiles, then the message of the gospel in its simplicity and purity is the same for all people. It's important for us to remember that the gospel is transgenerational and it is transcultural. It transfers whatever the message of the gospel is. If every person on this planet needs to hear the gospel, then when it moves from one culture to another, we don't need to carry along with it cultural baggage. And unfortunately, in the work of missions, much of what we have done, there have been some missionaries who have gone to other countries, and they have tried to Americanize the people that they're preaching the gospel to. But if I go into another culture, and there's something that doesn't transfer into that culture, then that's culture and not gospel. But we carry the gospel. It goes from one generation to the next. The message is the same. Every person is born a sinner and needs the, sa the saving, redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And that's true whether you're born in the United States or whether you're born on the far side of the planet or wherever you are born or wherever you live. That truth is still the same, and it's the same for you today. If you're here and you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then Jesus died for your sins because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the message of the gospel. And Peter says, God, you saw how God gave that message through me 
to the Gentiles. But look at this in verse 9. And he put no difference between us and them. It's not one message for me and another message for them. It's not grace alone for me, but grace plus works for them. He put no difference between them, purifying their hearts. How? By faith. What's his argument? His argument is you've seen what God has done, and what God has done indicates this decision, what we are to do in this decision. Verse 10, Now wherefore tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. He said, look, keeping the law, our fathers, our ancestors couldn't keep the law. We haven't been able to keep the law. Why are we expecting these Gentile believers to have to do the same thing? But we believe, verse 11, that through what? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. What is, what is Peter saying? Peter is saying, look, this is what God has done. When we make a decision, when we determine the direction of the church, what is God at work doing? I believe it was Henry Blackaby that said, we can watch and see what God is doing and then go, then go and get involved in what the work he is doing. We watch for that. And then Peter and uh, Paul and Barnabas, rather, look in verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silence. Up to this point, they've been disputing. Now they, they keep quiet, and they gave audience. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they declared what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. They listened to the testimony of these believers. They listened to the testimony of these leaders to say, look, this is what God is doing. It's not about my opinion it's not about your opinion. It's about what God is doing. Watch for what he is doing. Watch for the work that he is doing. And Paul and Barnabas said, man, we've been preaching the gospel in all these places, and everywhere we're going, we're seeing the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of these people. And the Gentiles, just he works in them just like he does in us. There's no difference. There's no distinction. That, that church without walls... They watched, they observed the activity of God, but their decision also magnified the authority of Scripture. Look in verse 13. After they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. We believe that this is the half-brother of Jesus who wrote the epistle to James. He is one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church, and he is known for his staunch love for things of the Old Testament. He was a strong Jewish Believer. He was a believer in Christ. But he, was, he held strongly to those things. But it's interesting what he says. And he, he says in verse 14, Simon or Simeon has declared how God at first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. What is James going to do? James is going to say, look, it's good and well to hear what God is doing through testimony, but what does the truth of Scripture say? And he says, look, when I hear what God is doing and I see the truth of Scripture, it confirms what is taking place. Our experience must always be governed and determined by the Word of God. I've had people tell me, well, preacher, I know that's what the Bible says, but let me tell you what happened to me. Now, I love you. Most of you. No, I love all of you. I love all of you. But if you come down between what the Bible says and what you've experienced, I really don't want to hear what you experienced. I want to know what the Bible says. The Bible governs our experience, not the other way around. 
We don't interpret Scripture by our experience. We interpret our experience by Scripture. And that's what James does. James says, look, we know we've seen, you guys are telling your experience, and we've seen God at work. We see that. We know that. And that's backed up by what the Scripture says. God said he was going to save Gentiles. God said the gospel was going to go. He said he was going to bring in the residue of the people. So the Scripture, the authority of Scripture is clear, and it is key to our understanding in making these kind of decisions. They did follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Notice a key phrase down in verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, to the Holy Ghost, and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. They, they reached the conclusion, look, there are some things that every believer should avoid. There's some sinful things, fornication and things related to idols. You're supposed to avoid those. But these are not part of salvation. Those are because we have been saved. Can we agree that it's biblical that because we're saved, we should live differently than this world we live in? Boy, isn't that, it, that's, the, that's biblical truth. And so he said, we, we didn't do this, but it pleased the Holy Spirit. They were attuned to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to see the work of the Holy Spirit in all of this. They watched to see what the Spirit had been doing in the, in the testimony of these leaders. They looked to see what the Spirit had spoken in the inspired Scripture. And then they understood that the Holy Spirit was at work guiding and directing them to not just take this doctrinal position, but how they were then to respond to this church. The guidance of the Spirit, they were observant, they were following that. It emphasized the unity of a Spirit-filled church. Verse 22, it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to do this. Verse 25, it seemed good unto us assembled with one accord. How were they in one accord? Because of the Spirit, the unity of the, of the Spirit. Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. Let me just make an important point right here about this. The decision was not made by the, the one accord congregation. It was confirmed. God had already made clear through the Spirit and through the Scriptures and through what he was doing, he had already made clear what the answer was. The church just confirmed what was already taking place. There's a lot of discussion about what do we, how is a church governed? How is a church led? And there are some who will talk about congregational-led and elder-led and this-led and other. Let me tell you, I, I, there's even, some people will even say, well, we talk about ch congregational church government, and Baptists traditionally have all been strong about that, but I, I think there's some bad connotations that have come into that. Let me tell you what I think is a biblical way, and I see it in this passage. I believe that a church should be a spirit-led church, not congregational, not an oligarchy with a board, Spirit-led, spirit-discerning, pastor-led, church-congregation-confirming church. And that's what we see here. We see the Spirit giving the decision to the leadership, and then the Spirit-filled leadership, the same Spirit that was leading the leaders, was the same Spirit that was unifying and filling the believers. Now, the problem comes is when you have believers that aren't Spirit-filled, then you can have a whole lot of trouble. And it doesn't take very many. 
This is the way, this is the process, this is the path they're following. And let me just say to you, I've had people ask me, with all the transition going on and with Pastor Tom stepping aside and you coming in as the lead pastor and all this has taken place, what is the direction of our church? And let me tell you that the direction of our church is going to continue to be the same direction that it has been because it was not man's direction to start with, it was God's direction. And we will follow the leadership of the Spirit on how that takes place and what that looks like. But nothing has changed because the work has not changed and the Word of God has not changed and the work of the Spirit in our hearts has not changed. And we'll continue to be biblical in our understanding of which way are we going to go. Otherwise, we'll be like the rest, most of our families trying to decide where to eat. And let me tell you, if we can't decide on where to go to a restaurant, what makes you think we can all agree on which direction the church ought to go? We used to joke about churches that split over the color of the carpet or the color of the pews. Thankfully, we don't have to worry too much carpet. We got a little carpet up here. My family was in a revival one time, and my dad mentioned in his sermon that very point that sometimes churches split over that and people get angry, and it got real quiet. The pastor came up to him afterwards with a little, you know, sheepish look on his face. He said, I have to confess, about a month before the revival, we decided that for the revival we wanted to refresh the church and clean up and do some things, new paint. And he said, they picked a paint for the auditorium that I detest, and I threatened to resign the church over the color of the paint. No wonder it got real quiet in the congregation. He said, I've confessed it. I've made things right. That's why we can have revival now. But that, that happens. Let me tell you that it is the Spirit of God that works through His Word and through the work of the Spirit in our hearts and Spirit-filled believers. And the church did not make the decision. The church, guided by the Holy Spirit, confirmed what the same Holy Spirit had led the leaders to lead. And that's, that's what's taking place here. What is the consequences of it? Let me point out a couple to, couple to you. It encouraged the hearts of the believers. Verse 30, when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, the, the, the delegation that is sent out, Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas, these four men. And when they read, when they had gathered the multitude together, this is Jewish believers and Gentile believers, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. This is not just the Gentile believers rejoicing because they don't have to become Jewish in order to do this. They don't have to follow the law. This is the Jewish believers. The whole multitude is rejoicing together because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And it brings great joy. Look, there's a lot of churches that just don't have joy because they're in constant conflict. They can't even agree. My dad pastored a church similar to this one time, and he went on Saturday night to get ready for Sunday morning, and he checked the bathrooms. It was a small country church where the preacher had to do that and even had to do everything, and he checked the bathrooms, and he saw there was no toilet paper. And so he called the treasurer, the deacon who was the treasurer, and he said, hey, I, I need to go pick up some toilet paper. Um, can you, can you give me a check? I'll stop by and get a check on the way to the store. And the deacon said, we can't do that. And my dad said, well, why not? He said, because we haven't voted on it. Y'all, we think that's funny, but that is not uncommon. I've read church minutes from some churches where they have a meeting every month whether they needed it or not. And you know what it ended up? 
creating dissension whether they needed it or not. And they would read the minutes, call the meeting to order, read the minutes from the last business, say we have no new business, and make a motion to dismiss. But they had their meeting. And they'd vote about changing light bulbs and buying toilet paper and all sorts of crazy things. Let me tell you that there brings rejoicing. When it's done a biblical way, there is rejoicing among the people of God. And they said, look, this, this pleased the congregation, and it brought rejoicing and consolation to the church in Antioch. It furthered, it increased the proclamation of the gospel. After they had tarried there a space, they were let go in peace from the brethren to go unto the apostles to go back to Jerusalem. But it pleased Silas to abide still, and Paul and Barnabas also continued. Of all the four that came, only one of them went back, three of them stayed, and they kept preaching the gospel. The gospel was preached. And can you imagine what a hindrance it would have been to the gospel? For them to have had to preach, you have to be saved by grace, but then you have to add this to it. And that boundary has been taken away. That hindrance to the gospel has been taken away, and the gospel goes forward. Let me tell you that the decisions that we make, our direction as a church, will be governed first and foremost and above all by does this bring glory to God? That is the deciding factor. Does this bring glory to God? And God is glorified when we are worshiping him in spirit and in truth and when we are proclaiming the gospel in purity and in clarity. And that is our direction. That is the direction we will go. There are a lot of things right now that are distracting churches and they are dividing churches. I've heard of two prominent churches just in the past few weeks that are being split in every direction because they're getting their attention off on other things apart from the message of the gospel. And I understand we preach the whole counsel of God and the gospel is relevant to every area of our life and we need to understand what it looks like for the gospel to be lived out in those areas of our life. But the conflict and the division that is coming is because we have gotten away from glorifying God by proclaiming the message of his glory and the message of his grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what will determine our direction. That is what his direction is. And I love that they don't get the direction. They don't, they don't follow what one side says, and they don't follow what the other side says. It's not what this group says, and it's not what this group says. It's what this one says. And God is the one that gives that direction. And it brings great glory to him. By God's grace, I can give you my word as your pastor that this is the biblical model that we will seek to follow to bring glory to God by the direction that God has for Central Baptist Church. Because this is not about man, it is about Jesus. And it is about God. So what can we take from this? Let's put this into just a very quickly, just some very practical application. What is true for the church, the same principles are true for us. Two great questions that I often get addressed to me is, what does the Bible say or how can I understand? Number one, people will ask, why do bad things happen? Why is there trouble going on? That's a whole in-depth conversation and that's, that's a primary question that I hear frequently in various forms. The second one is, how can I know what God wants me to do? 
How can I know God's will for my life? Sometimes it's young people. Sometimes it's students who will ask the question, I've got this decision coming up. I need to make, and we feel the pressure. Sometimes it's adults. Sometimes it's a, a question in a marriage. Sometimes it's a question with our children. Sometimes it's, it's questions about jobs and about finances. And there's all sorts of questions and decisions we're faced with. And some of you, I don't know, but some of you are facing questions right now. And in your heart, you say, well, you know, I want to do what God wants. I want to know God's will. And wouldn't it be nice if God wrote it out on a piece of paper and handed it directly to us with clear instructions? The same kind of instructions I need when I go to the grocery store. I thank God for cell phones because now if I have to go to the grocery store, which thankfully is not often, I can ask questions directly to Lynn and I don't have to try to remember everything she told me. Did she say margarine or did she say butter? Wait a minute, did she say salted butter or did she say unsalted butter? Y'all see the problems I have? I mean, these are really serious issues. I need very clearly written, specific instructions. I like to know what aisle it's going to be on. How far back in the aisle? How high up on the shelf? But like my wife, God doesn't always give those kind of instructions. It'd be nice if God did. Why doesn't God do that when he could? Because it is often through the process of seeking to understand his will that God makes us aware of things in our lives. And he does a spiritual work. It's not just to play some kind of random spiritual hide-and-seek. It's not something that's just for those super spiritual people that somehow have tuned into the secret frequency of the Holy Spirit. It is for God to be at work in our lives. Let me give you quickly four thoughts from this passage that draw, and I want you to see these as we go through. I think you'll, after we've looked at this passage, you'll see where these are coming from, so I won't take a long time to draw that truth out, but you'll see them here. The first one is the absolute most important, and I will come back to it at the end because it is key to all of these. We must let go of what we want for what God wants. We must let go of what we want for what God wants. They're not saying, hey, this crowd's pretty persuasive. They're a a considerable portion of the church. We need to listen to them. Or here's Paul and Barnabas. We need to listen to them. They said, no, we want to listen to what God has to say. George Mueller, the great man of faith that had the orphanages in, in Bristol, England, has some great steps to determining God's will, and I would encourage you to maybe look later and find those. They're pretty easy to find online, or you can find them in some books. But the first thing that he says is, I seek as much as is possible to have no will of my own in the matter. He said, if you get that point, you're a short distance from knowing what God's will is. I seek to have no will of my own in the matter. And here's where God will work on us. Because there have been times in my life when I have prayed over a decision and I have prayed over a matter and I will think, Lord, I have no will. I I really don't. And God will, will, as I'm going through the praying process and I'm seeking his will, he will make me aware that there was will of my own still holding on in my life that I hadn't let go of. And I thought I had, and I thought I was surrendered, and I wasn't surrendered. And you know what God was doing? If he had given me those written instructions, I'd have still had that bit of will and self in my heart that he was wanting to root out. He was wanting to expose. 
so I have to let go of what I want. I have no will of my own in the matter. Sometimes our will is to not do it. Sometimes our will is to do something God doesn't want us to do. And so we have to, on our knees, come to the place of complete submission. Andrew Murray, the great writer of years ago, would put it, call it this, absolute surrender. When I reach that point, then I am ready to hear what God will have to say. That's what we do next. We look at what God is doing. We look at what God is doing. We see where God is at work in our life. They look and they said, this is what God's doing. We see what he's doing among the Gentiles. What is his work? What is he got? Where is he directing and guiding? God, circumstances do not determine the will of God, but God will often use the circumstances to make us aware of his will. Look for what God is doing. Look for where he is at work and then go and jump on board with what he's already doing. Number three, listen to what God is saying. Listen to what God is saying. How did God speak to these, these people? How does God speak to us? God spoke, well, he spoke through the saints. We need to find good counsel, good spirit-filled counsel. Here's what we usually do. We usually find somebody that we know is going to affirm what we already want to hear. And it helps if it's a Christian because then we can say, hey, I asked a good, so-and-so is a good Christian person who just happens to agree with me on everything. Oh, it is a blessing to have friends who will speak the truth to you regardless of whether you agree with it or not. Find, find godly counsel. They said, what does Barnabas have to say? What does Paul have to say? What does Peter have to say? What does James have to say? They listened to the counsel of spirit-filled individuals. But God doesn't always speak through people. Sometimes he uses people. There's three ways. He also speaks by his spirit, guiding us and impressing things on our heart. That has to be carefully guided by the third one, which is scripture, and that is the most important. Now let me tell you what happens. If we're not careful to be guided in each of these, we may listen to the scripture. But if I'm not careful, and especially if my heart is not already surrendered, I will find a proof text, I will find a verse of scripture, and I may even pluck it out of context to confirm what I wanted to do to start with. And I'll say, I've got a scripture. Be careful that we don't speak on God's behalf. Let the Scripture speak for itself, and it must be guided. The Scriptures will not speak contrary to the inspired, Spirit-filled truth, nor, on the other hand, will the Spirit move us contrary to Scriptures. Mueller would say about that, he said, I must be governed by the Spirit and guided by the Spirit and by Scriptures. If I'm guided by the Spirit alone, I will be left open to strong delusions. There are people who will claim for the Spirit, what they want to do. The Spirit led me to do this. And it may not be in line with Scripture. And that's where the third, the counsel, the, the God, Word of God speaking through the saints. And how many times in my life I could tell you of how God has spoken truth to me and he has used a brother or sister in Christ to speak that truth. And it will be in line with the Spirit and the Scriptures. Listen for what God is saying. Our problem is, is we're not going to truly hear what God is saying until we're first surrendered. God, I have no will of my own in the matter. When my will is still present, everything I hear I'm suspicious of. Well, is that God or is that me? 
Is that God speaking about this, or is this just what I want to do, and I'm saying it in his voice? Somebody asked me one time, they said, what language do you think God speaks? I said, he speaks English with a southern accent. That's what I always hear him. I joke about that, but isn't that interesting how we tend to hear God say what we really wanted him to say instead of listening. This is, this is the word of God. I love what James said. This agrees to the words of the prophet as it is written. The word of God does not change. Number four, number one, let go for what God wants. Number two, look at what God is doing. Number three, listen to what God is saying. Number four, live what God commands. Live what God commands. There are some things that it's not a question about, is it the will of God? Paul says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you avoid, that you flee from fornication. God is not going to lead you into a sexually immoral relationship and then try to blame that on God. That was not God's will. I saw someone sent me a thing the other day, and I'm just to say this boldly, y'all... <laughs> Lord, do I need to say this? <laughs> it said, ladies, if that's not your, man's not your husband, God didn't bring him into your life. And the same's true for men. If that, if that lady is not your wife, that's not God's will. So there's some things we don't question. We don't pray about. I don't pray about, Lord, is it your will for me to go to church on Sunday? I've got a word from God on that. I've got a scripture on that. So we don't question those kind of things. God, is this your will? There are some things it is clearly already God's will for us to do. But when we seek to know, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want, what is your will in this matter? We need to just do what he says. Preacher, is what God says always easy? No, in fact, it is frequently not. Have you heard the old saying, God will never put on you more than you're able to bear? <laughs> Not true. I will say this to you, though. God will never put on us more than what by his grace we are able to bear. With his grace and his strength, he will call us to do things that are hard. In fact, I don't know that God has ever called me to do anything that I felt qualified and prepared for. He gives us tasks that are beyond us. His will often is harder than what we can do. And yet he gives us the grace to do it. Wow, there's so much to be said about this. But let me just ask you this. What decisions are you facing? What choices are you struggling with? Some of them are life-altering decisions. Some of them are small decisions. I love what George Mueller says in his steps that are very similar to this passage and what I've just shared. He said, I've been saved for 60-something years, and he said, when I have honestly and sincerely made sure that I was clear before God, I've never been led astray. Now, I'd love to tell you that I was as spiritual as Mr. Mueller, but I can tell you that if there's been times that I've gone astray, it wasn't God's fault and I will tell you this, that I honestly believe, earnestly believe from Scripture, that if I am surrendered to him, no will of my own in the matter, and I seek to follow his will in making the decisions, if I make the wrong decisions, my God is able. And some of you have made, like I have, have made some bad choices. 
Anybody want to admit that you've made a wrong choice a time or two? rest of you lying. That was not a good choice at that moment. You should have told the truth. When I've made a wrong choice or I've gone my way, I'm glad I serve a God who can redeem those choices when I have no will of my own in the matter. Which way will we go? Which way will you go? Maybe this morning you need to come and there's a choice or a decision that you're facing and you've struggled with it and you genuinely want to do God's will. Maybe you just need to come to the altar and say, God, by your grace, as much as I am able, I want your will. Let's pray the prayer that Jesus prayed. Will you pray this with me at some point this morning? Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Yours be done. Father, I don't know what choices and decisions folks are making this morning and facing. Some are facing immediate choices. Some have some time to, to pray through this. But Lord, help us. Help us to come to a place in our families, in our marriages, in our work, in our business, in our school, in our life choices, in the large choices and the small choices. Help us to be surrendered completely to your will for us. And may we say with our Savior, your will be done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed and eyes closed. This morning, if you're facing a challenging decision, maybe you just need to bring it to Jesus. Maybe you feel broken and you feel, as we sang earlier, you feel empty and maybe these challenges are more than you can stand. Maybe you're a student this morning and you're not sure about what God's will for your life is. Maybe this needs to be the moment when you begin that process of praying, Lord, not my will but yours be done. Lord, I want to do what you have for me to do. God may not show you in a blinding flash of light. He may show you in a long, drawn-out process, but he is a God who will show the way. The steps of the good man, the psalmist said, are ordered by the Lord. Are your steps ordered by the Lord? Are you holding on to your will in your life? God, this is what I want. This is what I want to do. I, I don't want to do that. To be willing to let go of it and say, God, your will be done. Father, I pray for my life and I pray for my brothers and sisters in this congregation. I pray for those who are nearing the age of retirement and past and they have decisions to make about the future. Lord, they need to surrender to your will. Their plans that they've made for so long may not be your plans. And Father, there are students that are having to make decisions about life and about education and about work. And Lord, they're, they're seeking your will and help them to understand how to seek your will. Not just to say, I want to know, but Lord, to seek you. And as they seek you, they will find your path. Father, I pray for moms and for dads. I pray for our single adults. And Lord, as we seek to know your will, as we seek to make decisions, we don't want to make them in our own strength. Our wisdom is, is weak. Our knowledge is insufficient. Lord, help us. Help us to watch for what you are doing. Help us to listen to what your word says. Help us to submit to your spirit. And then, Lord, help us to obey your command. 
we thank you that you are a good God who orders not only our steps but our stops. And when we commit our way to you, you will bring it to pass. Forgive us, Father, when we hold on to our plans and our agenda with tightly held hands. We grip it tightly. Lord, help us to open those hands. Help us to come before you with our hands extended, palms open. Absolute surrender, complete surrender before you. And as we do, may you get glory through a spirit-filled, absolutely surrendered people. May they see Jesus in us. May they see your glory manifested through a life lived to please you. Thank you for this example from a spirit-filled church. Help us, Lord, as individuals and as a congregation to follow this biblical pattern. We thank you, Father, and we give you praise and glory for what you will do in and through and for your people. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.